unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Last week, India's finance minister, Nirmala Sitharaman, presented her government's fiscal year 2023 budget. As in years past, the entire analyst class has been working overtime to scrutinize the minister's speech and the underlying budget spreadsheets to understand how this government plans to steer the Indian economy in the midst of global headwinds and an important general election in 2024. To discuss this year's budget and all that it means, I am joined today by Sukumar Ranganathan, editor-in-chief of the Hindustan Times. There are few journalists in India who follow budgets more closely or more thoughtfully. Sukumar is not an especially loud voice on Twitter, but his budget day tweet threads are a central reading for those trying to make sense of the new numbers. I am pleased to welcome Sukumar back to the show. Sukumar, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Malin. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the budget, I'd like to ask you to just sort of step back for a moment and paint us a bit of a broader picture of the kind of macroeconomic outlook in India as we enter the new year, you know, 2023. What are the the kind of most salient features you think our listeners should know about the economic situation as it stands today? I think uh, it's very important to understand this budget not merely from the Indian context, but also from the global context. And um, from the global context, I think there are two particular factors that everyone knows about, but you know, you, you tend to ignore these when you look at uh, a country-specific budget. Uh, the first one um, is the lingering impact of the pandemic. And, and uh, when I say lingering impact, it includes the response to the pandemic in many nations, which uh, spent a lot of money in trying to combat the pandemic and are now facing a situation where uh, months of easy money policy have resulted in spiraling inflation in part. And I say in part because uh, there are, of course, other factors that have contributed to uh, spiraling inflation. Uh, and that is the second factor, which is which is really the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, which has affected uh, the energy markets, uh, which has uh, roiled the commodity markets, and, and uh, clearly uh, resulted in supply chain disruptions uh, for a variety of uh, commodities and also products. The results of these have meant that many countries in the world are, are looking at a recession or a near recession in 2023. Although the International Monetary Fund's latest update gives us some cause for optimism. Uh, the January update uh, was a lot more sanguine about the global economy's prospects than the previous update was. Now, India is today a key part of the global economy. So in all these factors impacted a lot more than they would have done, let's say, a couple of decades ago. I'll just give you one example. In 21-22, for instance, exports was one of the bright spots um, of the Indian economy. It really touched record levels. And, and this is not just services exports, but also merchandise exports not going to be the case this year. We'll still do very well, but that's largely because uh, of what happened in the initial part of the year. But but um, the numbers will most likely be lower uh, and significantly lower than last year's numbers. And that's just one way in which India has been affected. So, so it's very difficult 
to ignore these global factors when you look at the Indian macroeconomy. But that said, the Indian situation is reasonably stable. Uh, doesn't have any crisis points, doesn't have any significant vulnerabilities. Uh, sure, uh, government debt has increased, but not to unsustainable levels and can be serviced. A lot of the Indian spending, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we speak more about the budget, a lot of the Indian spending over the last few years has actually been on productive assets. If, if you look at the budget, of course, there are interest payments that go out, but, but a lot of the spending uh, has been on productive assets, which, which is a good thing. Even if you look at the fiscal deficit, it is, for want of a better term, a good fiscal deficit. So, so I think it's important to look at these factors when you look at the macroeconomic situation. And finally, inflation, core inflation, which is inflation when you, if you leave out food, uh, still remains sticky in India but it's come down from where it was some time back. And, and all through last year, inflation was a significant problem, but next year, and by next year, I mean the next Indian financial year, which is April 2023 to March 2024, and the, and the budget that we are going to be discussing is for this period. It, it's likely to come down to around 5%, uh, which is, if you look at inflation in other parts of the world, a relatively uh, low number. You alluded to the fact that this government has really made it a priority to increase productive spending, right? So if we come to the budget itself, the headline that most newspapers ran with is the budget's ambitious plan to further increase capital spending, right? And if you look at central government's CapEx, as it's called, it has soared from about 1.7% of GDP to 2.7% of GDP in just three years, right? This rise in the upcoming fiscal year represents a 37% year-on-year increase from the previous year. You know, what is the larger meaning behind these CapEx numbers? If you actually look at the CapEx spending in 23-24 uh, and include the uh, the so-called inline grants to states, it, it's 4.5% of the Indian GDP. What it means is that India has taken the tough and long road to try and prime the economy, understanding the fact that private investment is unlikely to pick up in the short term. Uh, the hope is that a lot of this government spending will create infrastructure that will then attract private investment. And that is simply the bet that is being made. And uh, for the last couple of years, it is public investment of this sort that has actually kept the Indian economy going. Public investment of this sort actually has a cascading effect because many of these investments are in huge infrastructure projects and resulting in demand for everything from steel to cement to engineering services to what have you. And it's, it's the uh, traditional or classical economic way of priming an economy. A second big headline that really emerged out of this government's budget was its overall fiscal prudence, right? The finance minister stayed true to her pledge that the deficit would stick to the budgeted target of 6.4% of GDP this year, and for next year would decline to 5.9%. And this was a number that was more or less, I think, in line with market expectations. This government, Sukumar, has gotten a lot of credit for not engaging in you know excessive budget chicanery, uh, particularly in the last couple of years. Is this new budget, in your view, generally in line with this method of operating, that you know the numbers are the number? 
numbers and there's not a lot of gimmickry going on? Yes. I think this is in keeping with what the finance minister, Mr. Nirmala Sitaraman, has done, uh, even in previous budgets. Uh, you'll, of course, remember that uh, she moved a lot of below-the-line and off-budget items into the budget, including the subsidies. This was a couple of years back. So it made it seem like there was a big hit that was being taken. But what was really happening was that the numbers were becoming much more transparent. And the government, I think, is being responsible in not really busting the bank in terms of its revenue spending. Analysts wanted to do. I think it's very important at this stage that India demonstrate fiscal prudence. Of course, the, there is a little bit of a gamble in all this, right? I mean, there are two ways to spur uh, an economy. Uh, one is to really uh, in the short term, spend liberally and hope that this spending is going to uh, spend liberally by actually putting money in the hands of people. What the U.S. did, for instance, during the pandemic, right? Checks in the mail and things like that. And hope that that is going to spur consumption, which it did in the U.S., but it also resulted in inflation. And the other one is to say we're going to spend on infrastructure and we are going to hope that this results in increasing demand for a variety of products, creates more jobs little more long-term play. Will this pay off? I don't know. But I think India didn't really have an option. It, it had to be very, very uh, fiscally prudent and be very careful about what it was spending its money on. Uh, so uh, to answer your question in one line, I think this budget is in line with some of the previous budgets that this government has presented in terms of the fiscal responsibility that it displayed. Well, let me just push you a little bit on that because another headline, which was somewhat buried, is the you know expenditure compression. Uh, Sajid Chinoy of J.P. Morgan uh, wrote in a note that revenue expenditure, once you strip out subsidies and interest, um, has declined uh, ever since the pandemic year. Uh, in your own paper, Yamini Iyer had uh, an op-ed talking about. Uh, the government's decision to slash various kinds of welfare spending, right, has really moved that whole aspect to the to the back burner. Uh, are you worried about the impacts this could have on you know millions of Indians? Given that what we have seen so far is you see, what what people call a K-shaped recovery, right? The recovery has been good for the people on top, but not so great for those on the bottom. It's a it's a tough call to make, which which is why uh, I I said that. There was a bit of a gamble involved in this. Uh, you're right. Uh, revenue spending has come down. If you were to look at the food subsidy, for instance, I think India's and, and the bulk of the revenue, it's, uh, gains in revenue expenditure have actually come from the food subsidy. Uh, and, and, the, and that's come largely from uh, merging a pandemic era food distribution scheme that the Modi government introduced uh, with the existing food subsidy program. Uh, at least for the next one year, till till December 2023. And I have a feeling, given that we are uh, set for a ele national election in 2024, middle of 2024, it will probably be extended till June 2024. And, and that is really where a lot of the gains have come. Of course, there have also been some gains in the job guarantee scheme, the um, national rural employment uh, uh, guarantee scheme. And then, uh, but that is a demand-driven scheme. If, if, if there is going to be demand for those jobs, then the government by law 
has to make available that extra money. So, uh, yes, the budget assumes that there will be lesser demand for those jobs, and, and that too is a bit of a gamble. Uh, so the gambles that are really being made are that all this capital spending, and this is the third year in a row that you're seeing this huge surge of capital spending, and, and, I, and, and uh, very few countries have consistently spent as much money as India has in the last two years and in the year that will come on capital expenditure. And, and, and the belief is, and the hope is, and I think a little bit of the gamble there, is, is that uh, this is going to result in uh, demand for a variety of products. This is going to result in jobs. And, and, and if these jobs are available, then you're going to see a lot of uh, reverse migration, right? But one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was a lot of people going back home uh, from the urban areas because there were fewer jobs to be had. Not all of them, anecdotally, have come back. But if this kicks off, you're, you're going to see uh, more demand for jobs on these projects and, and less demand for uh, things like um, NREGS. Sukumar, so let me now kind of transition to the revenue side of the house, right? If you look at the numbers, it's not totally clear how the government plans to meet its revenue targets this year, given underperforming disinvestment receipts. And if you kind of look ahead, this challenge will only grow in nature, right? Because the government is going to have to consolidate the deficit even further. It's going to try to maintain its core capex thrust. Do you think the government has a revenue problem? And if so, what do you think they will do about it? I don't think they met their disinvestment target this year, too. And, and as you can see from the numbers, this year, uh, the revenue actually exceeded the budget estimate. Uh, of course, it was helped by the fact that the budget took a very, very, last year's budget took a very, very conservative estimate for nominal growth. And nominal growth ended up being several percentage points higher than what the budget estimated. This year, again, the government has taken a very conservative estimate for nominal growth. And, and uh, my sense is nominal growth could exceed that. And if it exceeds that, then your tax revenue is really going to kick in. Uh, this, but there is an interesting thing about the revenue where, again, there is a little bit of a gamble involved. Uh, and this is the fact that a study of how tax regimes have evolved around the world and, and a study of tax trends around the world uh, for a significant period of time uh, tells you that there is a point of inflection at which the tax buoyancy increases. And this budget makes an assumption about an increase in the tax buoyancy or the additional tax it is going to receive for every unit of every incremental uh, unit of GDP. So last year, for instance, or I mean, I keep saying last year, but when I say last year, we are still in that last year, right? Because we are still in uh, 22, 23. Uh, so in 22, 23, the budget assumed a tax buoyancy of 0.8. And this year, it's assumed a tax buoyancy of nearly one. Correct. Which means uh, it is expecting that every incremental unit of GDP is going to result in an incremental unit of tax. Will that happen? I don't know. Have we reached that point of inflection? I don't know. 
But what I do know is the fact that the nominal growth estimate is extremely conservative in my view. I think we will easily beat that nominal growth estimate this year. Next year might be a problem if the estimates are equally bullish for revenue that the government hopes to make from tax. But this year, I think they will make the numbers that they've put in the budget. I just want to stick with the tax issue for a second because the finance minister introduced some pretty significant changes to the personal income tax regime. And, you know, for many of our listeners who may not follow the ins and outs of this, I mean, this is a pretty complicated area. But as I understand it, there are essentially two regimes operating now uh, or soon. There will be an exemptionless new regime, which you can opt into, or an exemption-riddled old regime, which may have slightly higher, lower thresholds for, for actually paying income tax. Taxpayers, in a sense, have to kind of choose their own adventure. Do they want to go down to the new regime or the old regime? They have the choice. Could you explain how this dual-track system will actually work in practice? Is this a gamble, too? No. Uh, let me just clarify. Um First of all, although we all continue to call it the new tax regime, it's not really new. It's a couple of years old. It hasn't seen much acceptance, but what the finance minister has done as is uh, to incentivize people to move to the new tax regime. So effectively, I mean, shorn of everything else, uh, what it means is if you, under the new tax regime, if you earn around 7 lakhs, you pretty much pay next to nothing as tax, right? And But you don't get any exemptions, right? So your tax slabs are lower at the lowest end and at the highest end under the new tax regime. But the highest end, for instance, people earning in excess of two crores, uh, that's 20 million rupees, and people earning in excess of uh, five crores, which is 50 million rupees, used to pay a surcharge. What they've now done is people earning over five crores, which is 50 million rupees, uh, will pay a much lower surcharge, which brings down their effective uh, tax rate by around three percentage points. Now, now, you may say that there aren't too many people in that tax bracket, which is right. But what these people are opinion leaders, these people are industry leaders, I think it sends out a very business-friendly sort of message. Because I remember when the surcharge was uh, introduced, there was a huge hue and cry about the fact that many of these uh, individuals, some working in the finance sector, some working in the, the consulting sector, some working as CEOs, um, those who could afford to would move, or those who could do would move to a move out of the country, and and that actually happened to some extent. So so I think it's a good message. At the lowest end, the new tax regime is again extremely beneficial uh, to people who don't avail exemptions. And I've seen analysis, including uh, in uh, Hindustan Times, and, and uh, uh, say uh, which by experts, and, and this is all extremely fair analysis, which points out uh, the lowest end of the income segment, if you avail every single exemption that the government says you can take under the old tax regime. So you get one for uh, taking a home loan, you get one for uh, uh, making investments in certain kinds of products. You, The old regime is still beneficial. But the point is, a lot of people, especially people who, young people who work in the gig economy, are not disposed to avail these exemptions. I think that is something which has been ignored by a lot of people. 
The second point I want to make is that I sense that over a period of time, we will entirely transition to an exemption-less new tax regime where you may actually see lower tax rates at each level, at each income level, uh, with the idea being to increase compliance, increase the tax base, and at the same time, put more money in the hands of people. How soon do I see this happening? Maybe a couple of years, right? So I don't think it's a gamble. I think this is a process of tax, direct tax rationalization, which is happening. Indirect tax rationalization happened with the goods and services tax, which was introduced in 2017. Saw a lot of teething troubles. Uh, you know this, Milan, the tax rates kept changing. The, um, there, there was a lot of push and pull from the states, but I think it's reached a level of equilibrium now where everyone is being responsible about what rates need to be charged. And I think the indirect tax uh, regime in India has been significantly rationalized because of GST. And what we've seen uh, with further announcements on the new tax regime is, is that the direct tax regime is also now slowly being rationalized. I think it's a good move financially doesn't have a huge impact. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Sukumar, you talked about signaling to different constituencies, right? And and that is one of the uh, pastimes of those in India who follow budgets is to try to read the fine print of the budget and the speech to see what signals the government is trying to send to key electoral constituencies, right? Of course, this year, we know at least nine states will have assembly polls. In 2024, there will be national elections. What are some of the key ways in which the government used this budget to signal to particular constituencies, you know, whether it's the business community or certain caste groups or certain states, that they are thinking about them? This budget actually was not as political as many of us expected it to be. And I think uh, there are a few reasons for this. One reason is probably because, I mean, you could call it a mixture of the government's confidence in its own political abilities, um, plus the pressing need to be financially prudent when it comes to spending money. Uh, but I also think that a lot of the political signaling that had to be done and, and a lot of the schemes that will probably earn political dividends that have already been launched. For instance, I personally expect drinking water, and, and you know, it, it, it sounds, because looking at the size of the Indian economy, and given the fact that we've been talking about a lot of fairly sophisticated and interesting things, largely in the realm of finance, if I suddenly say pipe drinking water, it, it seems like a, a real third world problem. But India does have a pipe drinking water problem, and since 2019, this government has been trying to solve that with what they call the Jaljeevan mission. And, and 2019, the 2019 budget was when it was launched. And since then, there has been a significant provision for it made in every budget, including this one. Likely to 
pay off very significantly in a country where this was one of the last remaining first generation problems that needed to be addressed. So I think some of those signals were already made. And one of my colleagues, Prashant Jha, wrote a really fascinating analysis in Hindustan Times, where he said that this budget actually sent a signal to various groups saying that, you know, while we may not give you these things, we see you, we hear your problems. Right. And I think that is a fair assessment because if you look at it, uh, there were things that the budget did for the Dalits. There were things that were announced for certain geographies. So, so I think uh, there were those, uh, you look at uh, the scheme that was launched for uh, traditional artisans, right? And, and many of them are from, other backward cars, some of them are from the scheduled tribes, could help them or, or actually should help them. So, so I, I think it sent them a signal that they were seen, that they were, I mean, that they were not being ignored, but it didn't sort of, uh, the government didn't open up its purse strings and, and sort of spread money all around. And, and like I said, that it doesn't have the money to do that. At, at this point in time, it's very important to consolidate. So, so I think this was a very clever budget in terms of actually meeting its financial goals without really compromising any of this government's political capital. And of course, there is always the vote on account that is going to happen in February next year. And I think the government, if it wants to, could well choose to be populist in that. We will link to Prashant's piece because it was an excellent piece uh, and a study in, in how the government can signal to various groups. And, and you, you kind of preempted the question I wanted to ask you, which is next year, given that it's an election year, uh, they will present a vote on account rather than a full budget. But as you point out, um, there's nothing really that would stop it from um, loading it up with various electoral odds and ends if it, if it chose to do so. There's a kind of unspoken norm that you kind of stay in place. But of course, that norm has been broken before. Sukumar, I, I can't help but ask you about the biggest economic story coming out of India, which was not the budget, but the controversy over Gautam Adani and his companies. And to recap, the entire saga would take an entire uh, episode on its own. So we won't do that. But I'd just like to ask you a question that I think people are asking a lot um, around the world, as well as in India, which is, you know, what is the message that this Adani affair is sending to particularly the global investor community because there has been a narrative which has emerged, which is quite compelling about this idea that India is in a sweet spot right now. It's in a sweet spot economically relative to other emerging markets, and it's a sweet spot geopolitically given its positioning, given what's happening to China and Russia. It's in a sweet spot in terms of burnishing its own credentials as a global leader, given that it is chairing both the G20 and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Do you suspect or do you think that this Adani fair could put a damper on some of those assessments? I think this is a question that I'd like to answer in three parts, because I think there are three dimensions to this problem. The first dimension, and this is probably the most interesting as well as the most complicated dimension, is to do with the group itself, right? And there, I think it's important uh, to look at one, the allegations that have been ra raised, um, and, and I'm told that the Indian stock market regulator is looking into some of these allegations that have been raised in the Hindenburg report. It's important to ascertain whether any laws have been broken, but it's also important to acknowledge the fact that uh, many of the assets that the group has are actually real assets, right? I mean, this is not 
some Ponzi scheme where there are no real assets at the end of the day. This is a group that is actually building real assets. Sure, it might have been overvalued and a lot of companies tend to get overvalued, but this is a company that operates in the infrastructure space in a country that badly needs infrastructure and it actually has some real assets and actually has real assets on the ground. So it's important to look at that, but it's also important to look at whether uh, they broke any rules in that were uh, and you know the Hindenburg report raises several right including these shell companies that are based in Mauritius I invested in these companies and whether they should be treated as you know part of the group persons acting in concert and all those things so that's one dimension the second dimension which is a very important dimension from the Indian point of view and also from investors looking at India is to acknowledge the fact that the Adani story is not the India story, right? I mean, it's the two are very, very different. So, and I think the smart investors really acknowledge that. The Adani story is not really the India story. Sure, this is a group that is building a lot of infrastructure in India, but, but at the end of the day, um, India remains a huge market for a variety of products made by companies around the world. Uh, so it's a very different assessment that companies will have to do. And also important to acknowledge here that infrastructure is an area where foreign investors have actually been very reluctant to invest in India because it has traditionally been very, very difficult to operate in the infrastructure space in India. And, and this, this is a problem that goes back several decades. The third one is to look at the the impact on the financial system. And, and you know, for instance, Life Insurance Corporation of India. And if you look at the numbers, their investments in Adani at book value are less than 1% of their assets under management. And this is according to the company itself. State Bank of India, their advances uh, to Adani are less than 1% right. of their total advances to companies. Right. Um, Although I definitely would like to see tough questions being asked of LIC uh, and SBI as to why they went ahead and invested in the FPO when there were issues that were being raised by Hindenburg, right? I mean, so so those questions need to be asked. And then there are people in SBI and LIC who need to answer those questions as uh, to what the greater wisdom of this was. But very important to acknowledge the fact that just because Hindenburg's bet on shorting Adani worked out, and I think they were short on Adani's bonds, right? Doesn't mean you can actually short a variety of Indian corporates and it will end up being a profitable business for you. And I, and I think this is, uh, this is fairly clear to uh, people who operate in this space around the world, to, to traders who operate in this space, to, to market operators who operate in this space around the world. So, or let me put it this way. I, I, I think it's all right to short Adani. In, in Hindenburg's case, it ended up being profitable for them. I have no idea how profitable. And I'm not one of right. those who sees a conspiracy in this because uh, this is typically how markets operate. But I don't think you can short India and expect it to be a profitable option because I think the India story is much, much larger than the Adani story. And it's also 
uh, much stronger, and I think it still holds. I mean, I think that's a very useful cor- corrective and maybe a good segue to my last question I want to ask you, Sukumar, which is, you know, we're coming on uh, the, I guess, nine-year anniversary of this government in office, uh, almost a decade. It's hard to believe that so much time has passed. And, you know, I think a lot of people who study India from various aspects, you know, in the think tank community, civil society, the media, uh, the investor class, sometimes struggles to distill what this government's economic philosophy truly is, right? Because they look out and they see a huge ramp up in infrastructure spending, at times uh, a huge push on on what uh, Arvind Subramaniam calls the new welfareism, a shyness perhaps about international trade, but a lot of talk about making India the manufacturing hub and working India into global supply chains and value chains and so on and so forth. And so they see a lot of thrusts, but they're not necessarily totally consistent. Sometimes they're contradictory, in fact. This is a sort of a big question to end on, but I'll just put it to you as somebody who's looked at this for the past 10 years. You know, what are the two or three kind of core values or principles that you would associate with this government's kind of economic philosophy, if you if you could put it that way? Well, this is a tough question. It's also an interesting question. I, I think we could do a 13-part series on this. <laughs> but, <laughs> the Hindustan uh, Times, but, first in a 13-part series. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned welfareism, and, and I think welfareism is definitely... Uh, I would put it as a consistent thread that has run through this government's economic outlook over the last nine years. Uh, And the reason is, uh, we discussed this briefly. When this government took over, there were still a significant number of first-generation problems that needed to be solved. Sanitation, housing, water, these are all classic first-generation problems, so first-generation that we don't even like to talk about them. And solving these problems involves an approach which is distinctly welfareist. So I think that's done. What you're also seeing over the last few years through efforts to make Indian industry competitive and the corporate tax cuts were targeted at making Indian industry competitive, at making Indian manufacturing competitive, at building infrastructure. And now through, um, over the last couple of years, through the incentive, the productive link, the production link incentive scheme for uh, uh, companies that are manufacturing in India, uh, and these are sector specific, our efforts to make Indian industry competitive and grow the manufacturing base and create jobs, which is a second generation problem, right? Uh, I'm not sure uh, that we are in a position right now where we can assess what is happening with that, uh, but but that is a cert- second thread that I see. The third thread, which I actually see, is is about addressing third generation problems, and and uh, I would like to talk just about one, which is the big energy transition that economies and countries around the world have to do if we want to seriously address the climate crisis. And this budget, for instance, makes a significant allocation towards that. And I think that is the third thread that I see. So, so you know, these are all building blocks. I think we are at a stage where we are nearing a saturation of 
this first generation problems that india has i think maybe in the next 3 4 years there will probably be no first generation problems to solve this government has made some efforts to address second generation problems in a year or two we will actually be in a position to see how some of these have played out so maybe we can talk about them next year and as for the third uh, strand that i spoke about uh, uh, it's still early days but at least it's it's Uh, this is an area where we know that trillions of dollars are going to be spent by an economy as large as india in trying to meet its ndcs which it's committed to and as it moves towards moves towards becoming net zero it's a great business opportunity it's a great investment opportunity and and i was very happy to see that the government acknowledged that in this year's budget so these are the three streams uh, three threads that i see in this government's economic outlook over the last three years and i don't know there there could be more threads but to me this is how i would like to describe uh, not just this government's economic philosophy but also its political philosophy well a very broad open-ended question and a very thoughtful answer as usual my my guest on the show this week has been sukumar ranganathan he is the editor in chief of the hindustan times always a delight to talk to you sukumar and i just want to commend you and everybody in the ht newsroom for once again um just the terrific kind of wall to wall economic coverage we will link to some of the data stories and to some of the reportage and analysis from this budget um it, it truly uh, great stuff that helps people like me understand the nitty gritty of what went on thanks so much for taking the time uh nice to chat with you Grant Tomasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Lal. Thanks for listening and see you next week.